afternoon and welcome. Welcome to this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, for those of you who do not know and are new to IWP, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's program, which includes two online master of arts. We have 18 certificates of graduate study here. And if you are interested in finding out more about us, then please feel free to speak to any of us who have our tags and uh, our names. We will give you all the gory details or visit iwp.edu. So on behalf of IWP, I would like to thank our supporters first who make this event possible. And I would especially like to thank today's supporter, Mr. Robert Carey and Ms. Star Parker. So thank you. And uh, thank you very much for supporting the mission. And anyone else would like to support the mission of IWP, please visit iwp.edu forward slash donate. Now today, today we will be hearing from Secretary Alfonso Jackson, who will deliver a lecture titled The American Civil Rights Movement and Public Diplomacy. Now, this is very impressive. Secretary Jackson was the former Secretary of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. He has decades of experience in housing and community development. His expertise include the development of affordable and market rate housing, complex urban development issues, and of course, housing finance. Secretary Jackson was appointed by President George W. Bush as the 13th Secretary of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. And unanimously, those words are rare in DC, unanimously <laughs> confirmed by the United States Senate in, the, in of March in 2004. Before being appointed as Secretary, he served as the Deputy Secretary of HUD, managing a daily operating budget of $36 billion. Daily budget. <laughs> After his government service, the Secretary served as the Vice Chair of Mortgage Services with J.P. Morgan Chase, and followed by Senior Advisor to the CEO of the First Data Corporation. Early in his professional career, he was president and COO of America Electric Power in Texas, a $13 billion utility company, at that time a subsidiary of American Electric Power. From 1988 to 1996, he was president and CEO of Housing Authority in the city of Dallas, and it was ranked as the best managed no surprise, <laughs> the best managed large city housing agency during his tenure. Now, very important is as a college student, Secretary Jackson volunteered as a student protester in Alabama on Bloody Sunday in March of 1965. And that was, as students of course know, a civil rights protest from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. 
Secretary Jackson serves uh, currently on the United States Institute of Peace International Advisory Board and Ford's Theater Society Board of Trustees. And also recently, he served on the United States Department of State Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Board. He's also a member of the Alfalfa Club and Horatio Alder Association, which we just recently attended together. <laughs> he has been awarded numerous civic awards, including 11 honorary doctorate awards from colleges and universities, including, which is probably the most important to use for your alma mater, right. so Washington University in St. Louis. And Secretary Jackson also holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and a Master in Education Administration from Truman State University. And he has a Juris Doctor from Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. So with that massive credential, we are extremely proud to have you here. And thank, thank you. you very much. Please join us, thank Secretary you so Jackson. Much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Miss Ambassador. Um, it's um, it's uh, unique to be here in this cold weather. <laughs> I think when you listen to the ambassador, it probably comes to mind. You began to think this guy had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I couldn't keep one long enough. <laughs> That's the difference. But before I start, I wanted to uh, introduce my wife, Marcia Jackson. Uh, uh, she is by far my best friend. Of course, I get on her nerves a lot, too. <laughs> when I met the ambassador, I was extremely impressed extremely impressed. We talked that night and she asked me if I would come and speak and I told her I would. And I forgot my friend, my speechwriter, when I was secretary who gave me a lot of great speeches and people thought I was so intelligent with all the facts <laughs> that I needed. See that's the great thing about being secretary. You don't have to know very much, you just, be, you just have to be able to read. But let me say today that people do not realize the American Civil Rights Movement was significant to the success of America's foreign progress and relations in the world. As stated by Secretary Dean Russ during the U.S. Senate Committee hearing in 1963, racial discrimination here at home has an important effect on foreign relations, a tremendous effect. This is not because such discrimination is unique to America. Discrimination on the count of race, color, religion, national or tribal origin may be found in many countries, but the United States is widely regarded as the home of democracy and the leaders 
of the struggle for freedom, for human rights, and human dignity. That's why it's so important. It was, and still is important, especially in the early 50s and 60s, because the Soviet Union emphasized the plight, Miss Ambassador, the plight of the American Negroes, like of rights, and showed America the hypocrisy regarding democracy. Some of us might not be a little young and don't remember this, but the Soviets published propaganda movies, posters, books, and discrimination and violent attacks, especially those that stress lynching of Negroes. Now notice what I said at that time, we were not black Americans, we were Negroes. Secretary of State Dean Axton wrote, the undeniable existence of racial discrimination gives unfriendly governments the most effective kind of ammunition for the propaganda warfare. America's ability to gain allies in the Cold War then rested with the ability to appeal to non-white nations. Notice what I said. We had to appeal to try to augment what Russia was doing. During World War II, there was widespread concerns that racism in the United States jeopardized the ability of the United States to build and sustain positive relationship with important military allies. In the word of historian Nicole Slate, when domestic racism threatened the war effort by alienating colored nations around the world, racism became unacceptable. Historians in many cases described the humiliations of foreign dignitaries. And because of the severe problem of the United States government, it was very important. In 1945, after the war, as you know, the United Nations was founded and developed international corporations, protected human rights, and prevented future wars. That was the goal of the United Nations. It was headquartered in New York City, as all of us know. But what we are not aware of is that these representatives of color lived in New York where they became all too familiar with racial segregation, especially in neighborhoods outside of the South. In New York, Representatives from Asia, from Latin America, Africa, had humiliations and sometimes dangerous racial experiences. In fact, in 1964, and this might shock you, nearly two decades after the founding of the United Nations, 55 rep representatives from Africa and Asia submitted a petition asking the United Nations to relocate to another country where they would be treated as equal human beings. 
That was very important because it was at the same time that Dr. King was beginning to be notarized around the world, especially with the Montgomery bus boycott. I was quite young at that time, but it's still vivid memories in my mind. That's why I say reflecting on my life, it's important to understand that I grew up in segregated Dallas. I witnessed separate water fountains, bathrooms, and I was told not to look a white person in the eye because it was taboo. But that gave me the strength that I think that I have today. See, I can tell you that I personally witnessed the courage and convictions of some of the greatest Americans. And it all started my freshman year at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. When a friend of mine, at that time not a friend, but a friend of mine, Bernard Lee, came to Lincoln University and spoke of the important struggle that was going on in this country. And they recruited many of us from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania to go to Selma, Alabama. I had the chance to meet Dr. King, Reverend Abernack, and other committed men and women while being in Alabama. One of the things that most people don't understand is that all of us were not necessarily in Selma. I was in Marion, Alabama, the home of Mrs. King, where John, John Lee Jackson was tremendously murdered and nothing ever happened. John Lewis and I, with Hosea Williams, was on the Pettus Bridge, March 7, 1965. And I like to always say, there were about 400 white males on the other side of that bridge. And not one of them was a Republican. That always shocks people when I say that. <laughs> For me, history is a memory, a memory. The biography of people who I knew and loved, Viola Lusa, Reverend Reed. And I like to tell the story about John Lewis. That afternoon, crossing that bridge. Most people do not realize that John Lewis never stuttered before the beating that he received that day. And when I tell people when we took him back to Brown's Chapel in Booker T. Washington Public Housing, his head was this big. We did not think he was going to live. But what we learned that day is that we had touched 
a vein in the history of our country. But what was important is that seven days later, we started the march from Selma and marched all the way to Montgomery. Think about it. Dr. King was a very young man. And I was 18 years old when I made the decision to go to Alabama. And people have asked me, why did you make that decision? Because you came from segregated Dallas. Segregated Dallas. I share a story with you that my senior year in high school, I had to ride the bus across town to a Catholic high school. There was a store there called H.L. Green. And the bathroom for the colors was down in the basement, almost hidden. Well, I knew that Arthur Jackson, my dad, if I had urinated on myself, would have been absolutely beside himself. That's a nice way of saying it today. So I decided to go into the bathroom, ambassador, that says white only. When I came out, Dean, there were two huge white policemen. Now they might have been not so huge, but when you're not very tall, they look big. And they arrested me. But what was so funny is, is that when they was taking me to the juvenile detention home, the N-word was every other word with some other words. But my father worked for two of the wealthiest people in town. We, he worked in the morning in the foundry. He cleaned buildings at night and we cut grass on the weekends. So you've probably heard of this guy called H.L. Hunt. He had his own way of doing things. But my father cleaned his building and he liked it. So I called, finally they permitted me to call my mother and I did. And I guess Mr. Hunt, the other one was August Meadows. I'm not sure which one they called. But I remember when they released me a couple hours later. The policeman was so kind, I couldn't believe it. They said, do you want an RC Cola? He said, I said, uh, yes. He said, now make sure you don't tell anybody we called you all these names. <laughs> so I figured that either Mr. Meadows or Mr. Hunt, who were the power brokers in our city, told them they better let this little black kid out of there. But I also learned something else from Dr. King. Dr. King, the night that we landed, just before the speech in Montgomery, Andy Young came in, and he was very angry with something, and I can't tell you exactly what it was. 
And at 18, I was sitting in the city of St. Jude in one of the tents with Dr. King. Now, some people have asked, and that's why I was so happy when John Lewis was living that he could correct it, because I shouldn't have been in the tent that night. But Bernard Lee, who recruited me, was the closest person to Dr. King other than his family. And I have to stop and, and inject a little levity in this situation. Bernard married my wife and me. But Andy came in and he was upset. But Dr. King said something that I thought was important that night. He said, Andy, he said, I've talked to you on a number of occasions. He said, I want you to remember that it is the hater who suffers, not the person that is hated. And that's always stayed with me. And when I was talking to Martin the third, I told him about the scene. And he said, you know, Mr. Secretary, I didn't know. I didn't know that my dad had said that. And he said, when you told me I went and talked to Andy, and Andy remembered it very well. I said to you today, think about it. It's about the roads not taken. That's the important thing, the roads not taken. At the time when we could have divided this country with violence and hatred, Dr. King wisely counseled nonviolent action. At the very moment when we were beaten with clubs and attacked with dogs, he asked us to refrain from retaliation. And later, when we learned that some of our friends like Dr. Lee and Viola Lucy had been killed, Dr. King persuaded us to rely on God and human goodness and not to give ravage to revenge. Unlike today with Black Lives Matter and the violent protests that took place some, Sundays, some, 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 some summers ago, we didn't respond the same way. I can tell you as a result, in my mind, the civil rights struggle became one of the most important moments in the history. We won through moral force of our message. We won by the right attitude that we had. For we made the Constitution come alive and apply to all Americans. We did what others didn't do. We healed the land through our efforts to care about it. Think about this. We narrowly, during this period of time, narrowly avoided a second civil war that would have torn our nations apart. People do not realize that Dr. King, in my mind, had a significant impact 
on international civil rights and human rights around this country. As I said, unlike what we've seen, and I'll discuss this a little later, because I think it's important today when we start talking about equality and equity. I'll just simply say this before this. Dr. King and what I marched for at 18 years old was equality, not equity. And I'll explain to you what I mean later. But think about it. Activists in Northern Ireland were inspired by the civil rights movement of Dr. King. The Irish civil rights activist and member of the Council of State, Michael Farrell, recollects recollections of the inspiration that Dr. King had on him and his fight in Northern Ireland about bringing peace. Think about the indigenous Australian civil rights movement, the freedom rides like the ones we had in Alabama in 1965 in Australia. Or think about the Afro-Brazilians who we think we were treated bad, they were treated just as badly or worse. In, 19, in 2009, in 2009, they came to the Americas about the same time we did. In 2009, they sent some of their legislators over to study the historically black colleges so that more Afro-Brazilians would have a chance for education. <coughs> I'll say this, and I've said it a number of times, subconscious and, of course, outright bigotry, bigotry exists today. We can't get rid of it. I have attended several black tie events. And when I come out, Ambassador, I had one senator to hand me his ticket and says, when are you going to, uh, will it be long before you get my car? Well, I had on the same kind of tuxedo he had on. Or the time that I was in Boca Raton and had just given a speech. And I was coming out, Dean, with the US Marshals around me. And the lady came out. The, I, I never call a lady old, because when you have as many sisters as I have, you learn that all ladies are young. <laughs> so this young lady up in age <laughs> came out and handed me her bag. Now, I'm sitting there with a, I've got my brown suit on today, but I had the dog suit that night. And handed me her bag. I said, uh, ma'am, I don't work here. She didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. She snatched it away and says, what are you doing standing here then? Now, what does that mean? It means that even though I was dressed in her mind, I was a butler. 
or I was a dull person. See, that's just a, a slight sample of the things that I have faced. Think about coming up in Dallas. Not one major supermarket was in our community. Not one. We had to go across town to get to a major supermarket. That's what initially I lived through. That's why in my mind I survived all of this and I thrived. So that my daughters and my granddaughter will never have to face that. One of the things that I learned early from Dr. King is if you waste your time thriving on what was rather than what will be, you have lost. See, one of the things that I've said on a number of occasions is this. When I was giving a speech at Miami and Ohio, Miami University in Ohio. And this young white kid came up in the back and he thought he was absolutely brilliant as most young kids do. He says, well, he said, Mr. Secretary, you've given this speech. And he said, you said early on in the speech that you don't have any white friends. But you keep talking about one of your very best friends is President Bush. I said, he is. Well, he's white. I said, that's true. He said, well, then you have some white friends. I said, no, I don't. And I said, I don't have any Asian friends. I don't have any Hispanic friends. And then this young white girl stood up. She said, well, what are you saying, Mr. Secretary? I said, I have friends who happen to be white and who happens to be Asian and who happens to be Hispanic, but they're my friends first. And I have a lot of acquaintances that I've known for years. I've known Jesse Jackson for years. I've known Al Sharpton for years, and they're good acquaintances. But I can't say they're some of my best friends. But I can tell you that President George W. Bush is one of my very best friends. He was our neighbor in Dallas before he ever ran for office. But I think what's important for me, the United States of America remains the best place in the world for people of color. And what some of us don't understand is that we are the freest black people on the face of the earth in this country. Does racism still exist? Yes, it does. But I get a little tired of talking about systemic 
in my opinion, it is not systemic. Systemic racism exists when it's enforced from the top down. I can't think of one president since Woodrow Wilson that instituted segregation in this country. He was the last one. I can't think of one governor other than Wallace who tried to institute racism from the top down. And I can't think of one mayor during modern day time that tried to do it. So when we talk about systemic, we're talking about something that emanates from the top all the way down. Have we had systemic racism? Absolutely. In Dallas, there was only certain places we could live. As I said, there was no grocery stores. We had one fire station for about 35,000 people. That's not unusual back in the time when I came up. But what bothers me is when I listen to people tell me how bad we have it today and how racism is so bad. You know, John Lewis and I philosophically didn't agree on much. But I will tell you that he was an American hero. Not as some whites have said, some blacks see the black. He was an American authentic hero. And in my conversation sometimes early in my life with him, with Ambassador, Congressman, Andrew Young, we realized where we had come from to where we are today. See, my cabinet colleague, Secretary Condoleezza Rice, once said in a speech about racism in the United States that the United States is not a perfect country. It isn't but we continue to strive to be, be a better country. That makes us unique. That's why I tell people when we travel the world, look at how people of color are treated in other places compared to how we have done in this country. Andy Young recently, in an article, assessed the civil rights in this country. He emphasized the strides made saying, if anybody said things are no better now than they were then, they don't understand how well we have it now. Think about what he said. I'm the last 12 kids. My father had a fifth grade education. My mother had an 11th grade education and was a nurse midwife. But I tell people all the time, I never felt inadequate. 
because my mother used to tell me that I was special star. Now, they might have been lying to me, but I damn sure believed them. <laughs> I sure did. That there was nothing that I couldn't do. And I took it for granted. And yes, I had a lot of difficulties because they said sometimes when they talk, and my wife knows this, Star knows this, that when you speak your mind, they will say that the, your young white counterpart is arrogant, not arrogant, he's just ready to, to insist that he has his way. But when we have ours, it's arrogant. Well, they're probably right about Alfonso, it was. Because I believed in me. And my mother used to say something to me that I, that I took for granted. She said, son, I don't do it now since I'm in my 70s, but I did it a lot in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. I'd go in front of the mirror and I said, boy, you are absolutely beautiful. <laughs> See? And I said, I'd said same thing. When I tell people, I said, look, I said, I love me some Alfonso Jackson. And if I can love me some Alfonso Jackson, it means I can love other people. And you have to first feel it in your heart. And that's why having had the short period of time of having contact with Dr. King, I realized that we were destined, not just me, we were destined to do things and become an intricate part of today. As Andy said, the key to our success is education and progress. He believed, and I believe today, that Dr. King's dream will be lived out. We're one day going to really live the true meaning of the creed that we're all created equal. And I've concluded in my mind there's things important to say. When people talk, and I, I have to share this with you, because uh, Ambassador, my wife says I'm a little snappy to people at times because I seldom talk about race. And one person wanted to talk about race to me and I said to this young lady, I said, look, if we all say we hate and dislike racism, why is there debate? Why is there debate? Why? I don't understand why we keep debating something that we say we dislike and we hate. So when people, and my wife and I are out frequently, we get out and people start talking about race. And I said, on a number of occasions, I said, you don't want to talk about race and I don't either. And I come back to the same thing. If we hate and dislike racism, why debate it? 
we shouldn't have a problem today. But today, the problem we're faced with in many cases, we become so divided. Everyone thinks they're right. And I think my position is this. A person asked me about our country. I said, I am willing to speak in favor of an imperfect country. Notice what I said. I am willing to speak in favor of an imperfect country. Yes, I said, find me a country that is better. That's all I can say. We are an imperfect country but find me a country that is better. I said that we are the freest people of color on the face of the earth in this country. And the other debate that I said a few minutes ago when we were talking is equity versus equality. I marched with Dr. King for equality. I didn't march for equity. See, equity is defined as an outcome for all. But what it does when you talk about equity is de it denies the individuality of a human being because they're creating everybody as a group. And you're not going to put me in a group where I don't believe that black people or other people cannot succeed in this country. Because I can tell you a lot of our friends who look like me are multimillionaires and billionaires. So you can't say the same. But I come back to the belief that yes, racism does exist. But you know whose problem that is? The individuals. It's not my problem. It's not my problem. You're not going to tell me that I can't be in the arc of talking to the ambassador when the things we were talking about we had a lot in common. Wasn't that we didn't have in common because if I don't have any common, anything in common with you, I'm not gonna spend my time with you. See, because at this age, I am now. My time's gonna be spent with, uh, with my wife, my daughters, and my granddaughter. They're the only one that has a right to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no one else does. But I'll close with this, because I think it's important today when you speak to people, especially, especially. But before I say this, I want to say one other thing. When I, when I was a professor, um, at Hampton University, after leaving, after leaving um, President Bush, my wife wanted to take a break from D.C., so we decided to go down to Hampton and spend a couple of years. And I was called a distinguished university professor, and we set up the Center for, for Public Policy. So one day, one of the kids was in the room, and he said, um, Professor Jackson, he said, um, 
you're a Republican, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know what they say about Republicans, don't you? I said, no, of course I knew. Black Republicans, of course I knew. He said, um, but I want to ask you something. He said, um, before I tell you what they think about black Republicans. I said, okay. <laughs> he said, well, can I ask you something? He said, have you ever been in the Oval Office? I said, lots of times. He said, well, have you ever been on Air Force One? I said, lots of times. He said, have you been basically all over Air Force One? And I'll never forget. I said, yeah. I said, but I got angry with the president because he let my wife get up in the cockpit and land the plane and wouldn't let me up there. <laughs> so he said to me, he said, well, I'm not going to tell you what they said about Republicans that are black. He said, but I tell you, if I could go to the White House and ride an Air Force One, I'd be a Republican too. <laughs> but the key is this. We can differ with each other. We can differ with each other. But we judge each other on our ability. Maynard Jackson was one of my closest friends in the world. Ron Brown was one of my closest friends in the world. We disagreed vehemently on the way that our country was being run. But it doesn't matter. We had enough respect for each other and our accomplishment. So I said when we began to speak to each other, listen to each other, and I close with this. Speak without being offensive. Listen without being defensive. And always leave your opponent with their dignity. Thank you. Mr. Secretary, thank you for that heartfelt presentation. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, do you, if you still can stay with us, uh, perhaps there are some questions sure. from the audience, if, if, if you may. Yes, please. Sure. And so I have uh, you probably know him. I do. <laughs> he was wonderful he was a wonderful person who passed away. And uh, I have I was a fellow on foreign affairs. Uh, I am very concerned about the public position of the Republican Party and how publicly it seems to have lost its way. And the time you were 
that much. I think that's a very excellent question, and I've discussed this. Where I would disagree with you is that I don't think it's just the Republican Party. I think it's I think it's I think it's both parties. I think we have become so consumed with ourselves, with ourselves, rather than doing what is right for our country. And until that is till that occurs, I I, I get very worried. But I have to say this in the process. When people say, oh, we're on the verge of losing our democracy. That's the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard in our lives. We're not going to lose our democracy. People are too strong. People are believe in this country as I do. But what I say is this, until we begin to respect each other, and when I say this, I'm talking about from the president down to both houses. When, until that occurs, until that occurs, we're going to keep this problem going. That's why, I, as, I, as I said to the ambassador when I came in at the gene, this is maybe my escape mechanism. That's why I spend most of my time in South Carolina now. Because I'm tired of arguing about nonsense. I just think that And it, it bothers me to say this. The respect to disagree without being disagreeable is gone. And until we get that from the top, as I said a few minutes ago about, about racism, uh, systemic, it exists from the top down. And this is my prejudice. I don't think it has existed where there was an effort to bring everyone together. Now, this is my prejudice, and I'll say this first. Since President Bush left the Oval Office, I don't think it occurred. It didn't occur with Obama. It has not occurred with Trump. It has not occurred with, with President uh, Biden. And I, I know all of these people. And it bothers me that we are at this point where it's not a matter of doing what is right for our country. It's a matter of if we win, we can do X, Y, Z. Let me give you an example. You have a country right now that is on the verge of beginning to change with 9,000, 9 million people coming into this country in less than three years. Nine million. But we've got problems with our own communities, whether they be black, brown, white, that people don't have a place to live, and yet we're doing things for people who are not citizens. So rather than us getting together, saying, what can we do 
And we don't have to walk very far. We can walk down the street and see these encampments of people. Rather than saying, what can we do? We're sitting here debating, debating about, oh, we need to do this X, Y, Z. Now, my position is different in this situation when we talk about that. If we're talking about Ukraine, if we're talking about Israel, I, I'm, we have to protect freedom around the world. That's a different situation. But we try to put all of it together like we have right now with, with the House and the Senate. Well, if you don't pass the, the issue at the border, we're not going to deal with Israel and Ukraine. These are all separate issues. All of them are important. Why can't rational human beings, rational supposedly, sit down and say, we do have a problem. Finally, the president admitted we, we have a crisis at the border. Well, we had a crisis two years ago. We have a crisis right now in Ukraine. We have a crisis in Israel. So I'm saying to you, I understand your question, and I, I think about it quite frequently. And that's why Marcia will tell you, I, I, seldom, I seldom speak anymore. This is rarely. I used to speak frequently all the time. But I, I seldom do it anymore because a number of times I've spoken, people have gotten up and challenged me and called me all kinds of names and, and says that there's something uh, psychologically wrong with me as a black man. And that's their right to do. But I just, I'm just not going to deal with it anymore. Now, that might be young lady, that might be a cop-out, but that's, that's where I'm at this point. So I, I agree with you. I just, uh, as we talk all the time, my wife and I, I, I'm just tired of listening to the nonsense that's going on in our country. I, I, that's where I am. Any other question? Sorry if I went too long. <laughs> but I told you, see, when you have sisters, and uh, my dad taught me very well about that. You, you, I've never seen an older lady in my life. Yes, sir. Yes, in the back. struck me was first I mean they showed this archival photographs of State Department back in the LBJ era and they were all older white men except you know maybe one up, up black diplomat. But what also struck me was how they refused to send these um, Dudley uh, Carl Rowan and others to any country in Europe only Africa, you know, they would think, oh, you're only qualified to be an ambassador in Africa. And I wonder how long that process lasted. And partially it was the response of these European countries 
that is huge. He says, why are you sending this, in quote, infer inferior diplomat? Why does he send an older white you know, <laughs> yeah. person? And it was only Finland which finally was courageous enough to accept the first African-American um, ambassador after so many decades, you know, had just been LBJ. And I wonder if this process suddenly still persists, even with Condi rising, even with Colin Powell in the State Department, which has been very slow in, you know, desegregating and, and being progressive. Well, I can, I, 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 the, the ambassador that went to Finland was there in, on an interim basis from everything I remember. The first real ambassador went, that went there went to Holland, went to uh, Sweden. Uh, that was Dr. Holland, who eventually became the president of Hampton University. He, he Sweden and then South Africa. I will tell you they've had a number of, of, um, of ambassadors who were black to, to a number of the European and countries, but not the major companies, countries, I, I would say. You know, they're not in France, they're not in um, England, uh, Spain. I, I'm still waiting. But, you know, um, I was chair of the Fulbright Board at, um, at State, and one of the things that, that I saw when I was there and made an effort to change to show you is that the state is an old boys club. There ain't very many women either, okay? So when you had a state, we had state chairmen of the Fulbright, but, but basically all of them were basically white males, and then we began to change. But it's very difficult to change some of the process that exists in government. Uh, one thing Ronald Reagan said to me I think is so important, that when you say the government is coming to help you watch out. I, I still believe that today. I, I just think that we've got to get to the point, back to the point from my perspective, that we control the government and the government doesn't control us. Mr. Secretary, perhaps Professor Teddy, as your speechwriter, has a question. Sure. He's bringing you. He's bringing it to you. <laughs> I've never written that speech <laughs> for many, many reasons. Uh, well, my wife wrote a lot of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Secretary, and I, it's nice to say that after 15 years. Yes. But, um, when I was thinking about while you were speaking, and when you, you could elaborate a little bit on this. It was one thing uh, in your younger days and a lot of experiences you were talking about, as I understand it, what you were struggling about, uh, against in regard to civil rights is a change in the law. You're dealing primarily with laws that themselves uh, uh, create separation and so on. Right. That fight was won <laughs> at a certain point in time. You mentioned, that, on the other hand, the, the situation that came up when the United Nations was, was located in New York City, so that's later 1940s. And what I was thinking about is uh, James Baldwin, you may remember, 
Well, it is. It is. But, but, but let me say this to you. I don't think that's going to ever leave us, not as a country, but as a nation. I don't think that's going to ever be gone. And that's why I said when we talk about slavery, when we talk about racism, it existed around the world. The difference is, is as you just said, we acted by creating laws. One of the greatest debates that I had with a guy is he said, well, we were three-fifths in the Constitution. Yeah, we were. But I taught, taught I, over the years, I've taught a number of cases of constitutional law. But the founding fathers all had slaves, but they had enough sense to do something that no other country has done to the Constitution. They gave the Congress the power to amend the Constitution. No other country ever did that. So we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So it's not important what the three-fifths were at this point. As I said to some students at Syracuse one time, they were saying to me, well, the 13th, 14th Amendment is good, but that was the law. But I want to explain to you why Lincoln freed the slaves or the, or the slaves that were not part of the Union. And I told him, I really don't care. He freed the slaves. That's what he did. I'm not going to sit down and analyze him psychologically as to why he did. Now, if you read, you know he didn't want to do it. That's not the issue. The issue is he did it. And I think one of the problems that we see today is that we think, many of us, think that we're worse off, that this is the greatest experience, that, or the worst experience, I shouldn't say the greatest, the worst experience we've had basically as blacks or Hispanics. I'm saying to you, as Andy Young said just a few minutes, just a little while ago in an article, they don't understand. See, I believe today, what we see with BLM and, and many of the kids on the streets, they're looking for a cause, but they don't know what they're looking for. 
they have no idea what they're looking for. And so when you don't have a knowledge of what you're looking for, all of a sudden, everything is a problem. And that's what we're facing today. And the problem is we have people, 534 people with, with a president don't know what they're looking for. And that's the problem we're faced with. And that's why I told the young lady back there, I don't care whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I'll remember one thing, and I'll close with this. When I became secretary, I was eating breakfast with President Bush in the gray room right outside the president's Oval Office. He said, AJ, he said, now I'm appointing you secretary. You're the secretary not for Republicans. You're the secretary for the United States. That meant everybody I dealt with. And one of the reasons that I think people, uh, uh, which I think there's only been one or two others approved by the whole Congress since I was, the whole House Senate. One of the things that I felt is that I didn't care whether you were a Democrat, Republican, or what. If you needed something, you came and asked, and I'd try to help you. That was it. That's, and I think that's what I'd like to see. Yes, Star, one more time. Right. Why didn't a leader come up? Are we just so politicized and so indoctrinated, progressive left, that we would allow a small portion of our community to destroy this country without a voice to say, we still have problems, but we can solve it. This is certainly nowhere near where we were in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I agree with no you. Well, I, I guess it depends on the time. At the time that we were coming up, your father and I, a leader was necessary. You know, we had had him. We had had Booker T. Washington. We had had Fred Douglas. They were needed at that time. But today, we're so diverse in our own beings. What we need is leaders, not one person. See, one of the things I said to, to my um, uh, acquaintance, uh, and we, we were friends before he double-crossed me when I was secretary, Jesse Jackson. Uh, so, so I said to him, I said, Jesse, I said, every time they want to talk about medicine, they come to you. You don't know a damn thing about medicine. When they want to talk about law, they come to you. You don't know a damn thing about law. I'm saying to you, when whites want to know something about something, they don't go to the same person. Don't let them trap us as the liberals, the progressives. What I'm, I'm old-fashioned. I don't call them progressive because they're liberals. So the point is, don't let them fool us. So now, so we get somebody who comes up. And, and you know, I like, I, I debate, I like Al. Al comes on. and. Al is an expert on everything, <laughs> everything. Well, I'm going to get a little snobbish with you, okay? I hate to do this, but I spent 15, 16 years getting educated 
he, he, he started preaching at 10. So he, he's, I'm sorry, academically, intellectually, he is not where we are. So he can't tell me a damn thing about my life. So the question becomes, stop being put in a corner. And I think what you've seen in just, just in the last four or five months with the migrants, you're beginning to see black people say, I don't need a leader, this is wrong. They're taking things that we should be able to do. And it's not just blacks, it's Mexicans, it's everybody. So I'm saying we, and I agree with you initially, you see, at a time we needed a leader. We need a lot of leaders at this point in specific areas. And when we should force, and uh, Marcy will tell you, because they've called me a number of reporters to talk about areas I don't know a darn thing about. I remember when the COVID started, they started calling me, well, what is your opinion? Hell, I'm taking a shot just like you. That's all I know. I don't know anything else about it. So I'm going on faith. If you want to know about the shot, call Wayne Frederick, the president of Howard, who is an MD and a phenomenal surgeon. Don't call me because I've been secretary. I don't know a darn thing. That's, that's my answer. Right. Well, I agree with was you. Was there an opportunity missed, I guess, is going to be my question. And, and how do we get to where, when you talked about the polarization that's going on right now, and I think the alt-right and the alt-left want another civil war, where do we find a voice maybe within that middle that calms it all down and, and, and a black voice, not just a white voice, that then can be labeled, you know, extreme? I watched the debate last night before California for the Sam Feinstein case. And it just boils all the way down to Trump. This is Steve Garvey running for a Senate seat in California. And yet we we're stuck. But in that moment, I felt that was, um, I guess, a choice. Or was there an opportunity missed? Because maybe another team could have come up and said, go home. Right. I agree with you. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I have never in my life seen a country so enamored with one man in my life. <laughs> this guy, this guy, see what, what people don't understand, if he's elected, he's a lame duck the day he's elected because nothing's going to get done. We're all gonna go to vote that's right, <laughs> nothing. That's, that's what I tell people, I said, when the, when the reporter called and asked me, I said, I said, do you understand how the bureaucrats work in government, when they don't want anything done, they close it down. So if Trump is elected, they're gonna close down government. If Biden is elected, they're gonna close down government because they're only afraid of you in the first term. That's what people don't understand. After that, it's over with. So to be, to tell me that, that as I said earlier today, that democracy is at stake, you must think I'm a fool. If, if we've come through this, and philosophically, 
uh, I will say this, that Star and I are close on our way of thinking than probably some of the people in the room. But I, I, just, I just do not believe that you can have this kind of fear of a man because he sure isn't God. So that's, that's just my belief. We, we, we're going to come through this. We've come through so much, so much. We're going to come through this too. But if you listen to, you listen to, to, uh, to uh, what's her name? Uh, used to be over the house. Uh, I was talking to her. Pelosi. I was talking to her one day and she was going to tell me, uh, start telling me. And I said, speaker, I said, um, I respect you, but I know who I am. You don't have to explain to me. Explain to somebody else. Don't, don't tell me about me. See, now, if my friend, uh, Clyburn and I discuss, he's a good friend. I'll disagree with him because Clyburn experienced the same thing I've experienced through life. But, but we disagree, just like I disagree with Maynard, just like I disagree with Ron. The di difference is we still walk away with friends, understanding we have different perspectives. So I agree with you. We need to find, and I said us, we need to find somebody who can come in certain areas and speak on our behalf rather than us being spoke for. My father used to say something, that's what I tell people, that about affirmative action. There was a need initially for affirmative action because we were denied state universities. That was the basis of it. It wasn't for Harvard, Yale, it was for state universities that wouldn't let. Let me tell you, I was an All-American in high school in track. And you know when I went down to talk to Darrell Royal and Pat Patterson, they said we weren't ready for Negro athletes. They couldn't say I didn't have the grades because I was at a Catholic high school. But they say that they weren't ready for us. So that was for, that's what it was for. And at, the pers at, that, at that point, it was, it was right to get it done. Today, the one thing that I said to my wife, we might be educational poor, but not, neither my two girls or my granddaughter got accepted in their schools on anything other than their merits. And to me, that's the case at this point. That's how we change things. Thank you. Thank you.